Thank you, Joe, very, very much. Well, good morning, everyone. It is a delight to see you. And those of you who are listening online, watching online, welcome to you as well. We are very, very thankful that you can join us. Our uh, little series, our little series on the life of David, uh, I'm going to interrupt uh, this week and next for a very particular reason. Uh, last week, last Sunday, is particularly regarded as Reformation Sunday, and I completely spaced and forgot about it until the, like the day before, and then I was like, oh, I usually do something to mark the occasion. So I'm marking it now, and uh, we're doing some Reformation-themed things, uh, both in Sunday school, uh, we, we did, and then uh, this, uh, this message as well, and I'm already telling you it's going to be next week too, because uh, I'm not going to finish it today. We'll get started, however, on this marvelous subject that truly was perhaps... I don't. I, I won't even say perhaps. Truly, was the seminal, central doctrine at the at the heart of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century and and beyond, and that is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. So, if you would please take your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans, chapter three, please. We're going to begin this today. I'm looking at Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through the end of the chapter, verse 31. And then next week, Lord willing, we will move on as Paul carries his argument on through into the next chapter, into chapter 4, which we'll, we will uh, take some time to look at next week. So, I would invite you, if you're able, please, to stand with me for the reading of God's holy word, Romans chapter 3. Verses 21 through 31. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Well, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. God adds his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Please be seated. In the opening sections of the book of Romans, once he gets past the pleasantries of greeting uh, the church at Rome, he uh, 
he uh, does what uh, Zig Ziglar and other people like that would say would be a definite no-no when it comes to how to make friends and influence people. And that is he proceeds to demonstrate to them how destitute their condition is before God. And not just those that are there in Rome who may be finding some contentment in external religion or in adding Jesus as just yet another God into their, their panoply of gods, but uh, just also to the rank pagans who would think that they can go on and defy the God who created them and do whatever they like to do without any uh, concern for the God of heaven if they even believe that he exists. Because in Romans chapter 1, he talks about those who make gods out of all kinds of things, birds and creeping things, and the things that are created uh, rather than acknowledging the Creator. And thus, they are doomed and condemned in their sins by God's just judgment. So after these, these opening sections of chapters 1 and 2 in the first part of chapter 3, this opening salvo of Paul upon the conscience of his reader. Uh, perhaps their reaction, and uh, as you have read through this passage, I hope, these passages I hope in time past, your reaction may be somewhat similar to that of the Philippian jailers uh, there in the, in the prison where Paul and Silas were confined when he came to them and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved. Our situation is pretty hopeless before the God of heaven. But fallen man wants to know what he can do on his own terms to be accepted by God. The great reformer Martin Luther certainly was in anguish over this question. And he strove in vain to find peace in his conscience through all the works that the Roman church required of him and, and his own imagination came up with as well. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his commentary on Romans, uh, this particular section, put it this way, that the world is medicating symptoms and forgetting the disease. And certainly Luther was doing that before his conversion and many others who looked to the church or look to their own hearts and minds to devise what pleases God rather than listening to what His Word has to say, they are in the same boat. They're working on symptoms, but forgetting the disease. But chapter 3 and verse 20, which is just before the passage that we read, pretty much puts the death knell to man's hope that he can be saved by his own efforts. We read there, for the, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since the, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Not the relief from sin, but the knowledge of sin. Where you fail, though, God has provided a way. His righteousness, demonstrated by our victorious Lord Jesus, fills up what you lack. Now Paul is dealing here with the stubbornness of the Jewish heart that clung to the belief that, that they alone, since they possess the law, possess God's righteousness. And that stubbornness is not uh, unique to the Jewish heart. 
We also have our own stubbornness that thinks that because, because we've, we've got a Bible and we read it and we go to church from time to time and we, we don't, uh, we don't uh, as the old ditty goes, we don't smoke and we don't chew and we don't go with the girls that do. We've got all that external stuff that, that we think makes us righteous and holy and therefore because we know this and we, we've read this from time to time and we've, we've uh, you know, been part of the rituals, we've done all sorts of things, that we must be fine before God, that we must possess His righteousness, that we have standing before Him. And the fact of the matter is, is that God's righteousness does not come to you, is not attributed to you because of your works which can never satisfy his righteousness. They can only be yours through faith. And that's what Martin Luther and the Reformers discovered when he went back and started reading Paul again. And it turned the world upside down. So let's take a look at how this righteousness becomes ours through faith. And here in this first section that we'll be looking at at the end of chapter 3, uh, we will un come to understand that God's imputed righteousness is revealed through faith. Now, many here are familiar with the term imputed, but perhaps some of you are not, and that's okay. To impute something means to attribute something to someone else you know, at its very basic level. Um, Someone could come in here, and there's been a lot of fine uh, work that's been done. I'm going to brag on him just a little bit here, which may embarrass him, but that's okay. So when you look out here at the, at the railings out there, this is just one evidence. We have many people talk about how beautiful this church is on the outside, and they love the railings, and they love all of that. Uh, every one of those sticks that's out there, the balustrades, were handmade by Stu. And he devised the jig to put it all together, put all it looks great because of what he did. But people will come up to me and go, oh, you guys did a great job on this. That is so beautiful. And most of the time I don't go, I had nothing to do with that. It was all Stu. I gladly take the imputed glory. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It was attributed to me even though the work was done by him. Okay, I did help screw them up. I mean, screw them on. <laughs> but I think you know what I mean. The righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ becomes ours because it is imputed to our account. Not that we earned it, not that we did anything. We could not ever rise to that standard. But when the Lord looks at our account, the deficit that is naturally ours because of our fallen condition is met by the work of Christ. His righteousness is imputed to us. And we come to understand that as it's revealed through faith. Now take a look at verse 21. Interesting, interesting verse. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested or made clear apart from the law. The law certainly reveals God's righteous requirements. The, his, what he values in his the reflections of his character, these standards that he has imposed upon his creation. So we can see his righteousness manifested there. It's not that the law, Paul's not saying 
chuck the law. It's no good anymore. It has nothing to do with Christians or anything else. That could, nothing could be further from the truth because the law is a very manifestation of God's character and what he demands of us. What Paul is talking about here is an additional aspect of revelation so that we can really come to grips with, with what this law is about. It's not about just keeping the law Although that the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, it's all all that we see that's connected with the law reveals God's righteousness. Now, this is really an important point. It seems like a Paul is just giving um, just kind of a little bit of a background that's not all that important before he gets on to his main point. But this is significant. I want you to understand that, as it says here, they, the law and the prophets bear witness to God's righteousness. Why is that so significant? If you have the understanding that because you possess the law, because you've got a Bible, because uh, there's rules and regs, regs out there that we're all supposed to follow, and that by doing that, that is what creates righteousness, you've got you've got everything backwards. The law and the prophets, by extension, do not create righteousness. God didn't even give the law so that it would create righteousness in people. He gave those to reveal what righteousness is. God is the one who is righteous. He's the one who establishes what righteousness is. And the law and the prophets merely bear witness to it. That's why they're timeless, and that's why they continue to be value for, valuable for us, even when we come to Christ through faith by His grace. Because they, they bear witness to what God is and what God does and what God demands. They don't create it. That's why it says, but now the righteousness of God has been made even clearer by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Where we're all lost, the works of the law, we can't, as verse uh, 20 said, there's not a thing that we can do to be justified. But now, we find uh, how we may actually attain to this status of righteous before God. And in fact, it says, manifested apart from the law. That apart from the law simply means, Paul's just saying, that your righteousness is not achieved by your obedience because your obedience can never be perfect. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't be obedient. You should be. But that's not how you attain the righteousness. Martin Lloyd-Jones, again, in his commentary, I got a lot of... I almost just got up, just thought, I'll just read the passage. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it's so much better, but that might be a little tedious. So I guess a few gems. But he asks a very telling question at this point. He says, do you see that you stand by faith? It would be useless for us to go on if you are still holding on to any sort of idea that you can ever make yourself a Christian, that by living a better life, or by doing this or that or the other, you are going to improve your position in the sight of God. 
Has it become clear that it does not matter? If you were, live, if you were to live to be as old as Methuselah, or even a million years, you would never put yourself right before God. Time will not help you. Nothing can help you. We are all of us under condemnation. We are all under the wrath of God. We can never produce a righteousness that can stand up to God's searching glance and examination and investigation. We are altogether hopeless. Are you clear on that? If you are, you are ready to rejoice in these two words, but now. Because the righteousness of God is apart from the law and is revealed by faith. It's witnessed by prior revelation, not created by it. Now, to whom is it revealed? And that is the subject of the remainder of this section. It's revealed to all who believe. Paul says in verse 22 that there's no distinction. Uh, it's for all who believe. There's no distinction because all have sinned and all have fallen short of God's glory. All those who believe, believing in, includes such things as those who recognize their sin. <coughs> Falling short of God's glory. <coughs> Have you ever really thought about how far you've fallen from the glory for which you were created? The psalmist and Psalm 8 reflects on the incredible creation that man is. Made a little lower than the angels. Crowned him in glory and honor. And you look at our, our society, our arts, our entertainments, our interests, our general behavior, our conduct between uh, individuals, between nations, I know this is somewhat cliched, but how many science fiction movies are built upon the premise that some aliens somewhere have been watching us on their, their celestial TVs up there and, and, and have decided that we are not worth living, so they come to destroy us? But of course, in those, they always turn out pretty well because somewhere, somehow, man seems to find a little spark of goodness that, that saves the whole race. The actual, that part is even harder to believe than the first part. We have nothing to commend ourselves. And we've truly fallen from grace and from glory. A glory that the Lord gave to us thinking of, of the duty that he gave Adam, renewed with Noah. How often have you read those words and really pondered what it means to exercise dominion over the creation? To tend and keep it. And I don't know, it's, it's easy to think, well, I go and I do my garden. <laughs> Which if you went to our garden this year, oh, what an utter failure uh, I've been in that, in that uh, realm. 
But the, the fact of the matter is, is that we were created to be those who rule and reign, and to do so with dignity and honor, in a manner that reflects the very character of our God. And we just don't do it. And in fact, we tend to rule and reign this earth, over this earth in a manner that reflects our fallen nature and our father, the devil. Which is why James says in James uh, chapter 2, where do, uh, where do all of the wars and fights come from among you? They come from the lusts that war in your members that you want and you can't have. And you fight and you, you, you take advantage of everyone else so that you can get what you want. That's where the problems of this world come from, is sin. But this righteousness of God is revealed to us, witnessed by the law and the prophets, as by His grace, He grants us the faith to believe. To, and it begins with a recognition of our sinful condition, how far, far we have fallen. And in that condition of being those who are mourning for their sins, we look up from the bottom of the well, as it were. We've got nothing to offer the Lord. And yet, as we read here in verse, uh, verses 24 through 26, He delights to justify those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, this one who was given as a gift, given by grace. We're justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. This is where Paul brings things. It wasn't, though the law and the prophets witnessed to it, it was fully revealed in Christ, who was the only one who could perfectly meet the demands of the law. And in these verses we see Christ in various uh, uh, manifestations. One, verse 24, he is the Christ, which is the Greek equivalent of uh, the Hebrew for Messiah. Though he is the one who was sent. The one who is appointed and anointed, sent forth, the sent one. We needed to have, you know, again, here with the sci-fi movies, um, how many of those are based on the whole concept of a Messiah? A lot of them. A lot of them. Everybody wants a Messiah. Everyone wants someone to come and fix the problem. Everyone wants to come deliver. Wants someone to come who's going to deliver us and restore us all to uh, to uh, wonderful times and soft living. But Jesus was sent to bring us to the end of ourselves. And to conquer what conquers each of us, sin and death. He is the promised one who was sent. And he didn't come in a corner. It says he was set forth. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. This one who's made obvious, in other words. To anyone who's paying attention. Who anyone by the grace of God has had their eyes open to see. It is obvious. Paul would, would rebuke the Galatian church in this way. Oh, foolish Galatians. By the way, the Galatians were really caught up in the whole idea of 
thinking that they had to basically, remember this is a Galatian church, is a Gentile church largely. But they were caught up with the, the error of, Jude, of the Judaizers who said you had to do all of the Jewish things in order to be saved. And so they were adding in rules and regulations about diet and what you could touch and what you couldn't touch and where you could go and all of these other kinds of things. And Paul says to them, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. He was set forth. Now, I seriously doubt that anybody in the Galatian church to whom Paul was writing was at the hill of, of, uh, of Calvary when Christ was crucified. So what's he talking about here? He's talking about through the preaching of the word, through the law and the prophets, through the revelation that God was giving the apostle Paul to declare to them that Christ was the one that was set forth, was obvious, that fulfilled all the things that the law had said was necessary for the salvation of our souls. And Paul says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing by faith? Rhetorical question. The answer is item B. They, heard the, they learned Christ. They received the Spirit by hearing with faith. Christ was set forth and made obvious in the preaching of the word that was built upon historical fact that fulfilled all that God had said point by point by point. And he was set forth as crucified. He is, as Paul, as, uh, Paul goes on in Romans 3, the one who was sacrificed, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, the basis of forgiveness by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show uh, his righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. In other words, he could have brought judgment on the world at any time. Christ could have come at some other time from our perspective, right? But in other places we read that in the fullness of time, Christ came. At the time of God's appointment, it came. Though, it wasn't that he let sin go before. It's just he didn't deal with it in the direct way through the Lord Jesus Christ that was seen there on that hill outside of Jerusalem. But isn't it uh, obvious as we read these verses that in order to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Isn't it obvious to you that this free gift that we just read about, this gift of grace, really isn't free? It's not free at all. God would not be righteous. Indeed, I believe that he would not be God if he granted forgiveness without satisfying the demands of his law. He would be the most incredible hypocrite that ever was. Oh, it's okay. Never mind. No. Well, from our perspective, the gift is free. There was a cost. And the cost was that of the life and blood of the Lord Jesus. Because only through Jesus are the demands of the law met 
Only through Jesus can you be saved. And this is revealed to all who believe in Him by this free gift of grace and faith that is given to us. Verses 27 and 28, Paul asks, well, what becomes of our boasting? What are we boasting in? Well, we've got the law. Well, we've got, we've got the prophets. And we've got uh, all the rituals. We've got all these other things. Paul uh, is uh, dealing with those things in the book of, of uh, Romans here. But it's important as we look here to understand that it is not, we've got nothing to boast in. It's excluded. And, not, and, and precisely because we uh, may attain to a righteous status before God apart from our works, because our works can accomplish nothing. It is by faith alone. It's the law of faith, the requirement of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. You know, it's interesting. We talk about faith alone, one of the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. We have posted on our wall here. We recognize that that faith is an absolute requirement. We talk about being justified, justification through faith. I think it's good to pay attention to the prepositions. I think it's better to say through faith rather than by faith. We can have a tendency to think that if I just believe and I just have faith, I'll be saved. Honestly, faith is not what saves you. Jesus saves you. He grants you the faith to believe in that fact. So it's a, it's a vehicle. <laughs> it's, the, so it's, it's how we get there that he grants to us that we can believe in the, what Jesus has done. Jesus' work, ultimately, is what saves us. Faith is not a work, in other words. It's a gift. It's a God-enabled response. It's not something you can just drum up until you get to a sufficient level to believe in Jesus. It's something to pray for and expect that he will answer that prayer as you pray in faith, believing. All who believe also recognize that we are justified by one God. Look at verses 29 and 30. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of the nations, of Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one. There's not a God of the Jews and a God uh, of the Gentiles. There's only one true and living God who saves. It's all of Him. He is the one, Paul would say, the Philippian church, who works in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. And He is going to justify, whether circumcised or uncircumcised, through faith. He brings about this justification. All of Him. Nothing of ourselves. And verse 31 draws this particular section to a close by, by 
recognizing that as God's righteousness is revealed through faith, it goes beyond just saying, well, here I see it in front of me, and I see what's I see what God requires, and I see what my status is supposed to be, and I see how I'm supposed to be walking now, and, and, and all of that's great. The Lord doesn't just leave it at that. Verse 31 makes that very clear. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? No, by no means. On the contrary, on the contrary we uphold the law. This righteousness that's been revealed through faith, through the law, witnessed to by the law and the prophets, is confirmed as the law is fulfilled, as its purpose is accomplished. Again, to quote Martin Lloyd-Jones, what does this mean? It means that our attempting to keep the law perfectly ourselves as the means of salvation has been entirely set aside. Not because the law no longer applies, but get this, because, but because another has rendered this perfect obedience to the law on our behalf. Let me read that again. It means that our attempting to keep the law perfectly ourselves as the means of salvation has been entirely set aside not because the law no longer applies, but because another has rendered this perfect obedience to the law on our behalf. But is not the Mosaic Code the grand testament to the truth that it is through ritual and duty that men come to God? Such is the mindset of the Jews to whom Paul is writing, as well as to anyone who puts their hopes in external religion these days. If Paul can show that the righteousness of God was imputed to men before Moses, then he establishes that his argument is true, that works are irrelevant in justification. And he will do that in the next chapter as he turns to look at the life of Abraham. And by God's grace, we will take a look at that next week. But let me summarize this then by just drawing us back through the threads, pulling these threads together that we've talked about. Bottom line, you can't earn God's righteousness. You can only be recognized as righteous in His sight because of what Jesus did who earned it that righteousness, who fulfilled all things perfectly, both actively and passively, being fully and completely obedient to the Father's plan. It is in the works and the life of Jesus Christ that we find our hope, and there alone. Paul is talking to a group of people, just like us, who need to be reminded that we are when must be hidden in him if we are to be saved. That it is, it is his righteousness that is attributed, imputed to our account. That we have nothing to offer the Lord on our own. It is only the Lord Jesus. I trust that each one of you has that faith. And I pray that if you don't, that you will seek the Lord with all your might, asking him, for mercy, 
and to grant you faith of turning away from your sins, but a faith that will cling to the Savior who alone can save you. There is no other Redeemer. There is no other, other uh, Savior but the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can only be justified, which is a legal term that means you've been declared righteous, by faith. The Lord promises that all who seek Him with all their hearts will ever surely find Him. And that is my prayer for every person in this room. Let us not seek to be justified by our works, but be content to be justified by the works of our Savior, the Lord Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for us. Let's pray. I thank you, Father, for this incredible doctrine that you put before us. It's so deep, it's so profound, and yet it's so simple. Christ died for us. Died for me. And that's enough. Thank you, Lord, for revealing this to us. Help each of us. Grant us that faith that clings to Christ and no other for our redemption. For Lord, then and only then will we be justified in your sight and have standing with you and know your love, your peace, and eternal life with you. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, as we prepare to come to the Lord's table, we'll sing that great Reformation hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Standing, please, if you're able, we'll turn to 244 as we sing together. Thank <laughs> you.